Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be there this morning digging in together. We've been in Jonah for the last several weeks, and what we've seen so far in the book of Jonah is that God comes to Jonah, and he gives him a commission or a call. He tells him, Jonah, arise from where you are, and I'm sending you uh, to Nineveh. And Jonah says, thanks, but no thanks, God. I think I'm going to go in the opposite direction. So God sends Jonah east, and Jonah goes as far as he can west, and he runs from God. But he runs right into the what some theologians would call the loving wrath of God, God's anger against his sin as he hurls a storm upon the sea, and it t- causes the boat to threaten to break up that he's on as he tries to escape from where God is calling him to go. And the sailors ultimately wind up throwing Jonah overboard and hurling him into the ocean in order for the seas to subside and the winds to die down. And so as Jonah sinks to the bottom of the depths, God appoints a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. And Jonah is in the belly of the fish, we're told, three days and three nights. And from the belly of the fish, he cries out to God in a psalm of thanksgiving for God has saved him from certain and impending death. And so we find ourselves this morning in Jonah chapter, end of Jonah chapter 2. We'll pick up reading in verse 10, and we'll read down through chapter 3, verse 10. So if you have a copy of the text, go ahead and follow along there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together. In Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, the text says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. One of the things the book of Jonah teaches us is this, is that God is indeed a God of second chances. I remember uh, the last video, make a confession to you this morning, the last video game system I ever owned was the original Nintendo Entertainment System, okay, the little gray box uh, that had like three buttons on the controller, okay, that's all it had, um, but on the front of that gray, that gray box, we put like Super Mario Brothers in, or Duck Hunt in, um, or Contra, we used to play Contra all the time as a kid, man, so we had all these great Nintendo Entertainment System video games that we used to play day after day after day after day, and like I said, that console wasn't fancy, it was a gray box that had two buttons on the front, and the first button was the power button that allows you to turn that box on. 
And the second button was called the reset button. Now, the reset button was awesome uh, because the reset button, no matter how far you had gotten into the game or no matter how badly you had failed at whatever it is you were trying to accomplish, whatever mission you were trying to achieve and whatever game you were playing, you could always hit the reset button and you could start over. You could start over no matter how far you had gone and no matter how badly you had failed. And what Jonah and the Ninevites both find in Jonah chapter 3 is that the same thing is true in relationship with a God who keeps covenant with his people. Is that no matter how far you have gone and no matter how badly you have failed, there's always an opportunity to hit the reset button. There's always an opportunity to start over. There's always a second chance. That's what Jonah finds after rebelling against God and running from God and resisting God and failing to be obedient and submissive to where God was sending him, Jonah finds a second chance. Because at the end of Jonah chapter 2, the Lord commands the fish and the fish opens his mouth. And the text is pretty clear. He just kind of pukes right there on the beach and vomits Jonah out onto dry ground. It's a second chance that Jonah has. The people of Nineveh are no different. They find a second chance as well. And I want you to know this this morning, is that no matter where you are, no matter how far along in life you may be, and no matter how badly you feel like you may have failed, and that you may have destroyed everything around you and left a wake of chaos behind you, there is an opportunity for a second chance. There's an opportunity to push the reset button and to start over. In this particular text this morning, I think you're going to see several things about this second chance. First of all, the fact that you get one. It's a glorious thing that we get one, isn't it? Secondly, though, not only that we get one, but there's a reason that we get one. There's a purpose behind it. God's wanting to do something through that second chance that he extends. And then finally, not only the fact that we get one, the fact that God's going to do something through it, but also, also there's a means by which we embrace it. And we lay hold of that second chance that God affords. So the fact of it, the purpose behind it, and the means of it is what we want to see this morning of these second chances that God continues to extend. So first and foremost, the fact of it. I want you to look in the text. You're going to see uh, in Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3 that God indeed extends two second chances by extending grace. God extends grace. How does he extend grace? He extends grace through the fish that swallows Jonah in 117. He extends grace through the fish that vomits Jonah onto the dry ground in 210. God appoints that fish to swallow him, and God speaks to the fish to get rid of him. Right? It's grace that he finds himself on dry ground once again. And the word of the Lord, the text tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, comes to Jonah for the what? The second time. The second time God comes to Jonah with the same commission, with the same call, with the same mission. Arise now that you find yourself again on dry ground and head west or head east. I'm sorry, to Nineveh, to the people that I sent you to originally. God gives Jonah a second chance. A second chance to fulfill the mission that he had given him. A second chance to be the person that he was calling him to be. But I want you to notice also God not only gives Jonah a second chance, but he also gives the people of Nineveh a second chance. When Jonah shows up in Nineveh and he begins to walk through the city, the Bible tells us that it's a great city, right? It's a very influential city in the ancient world, a large city, a capital city of an empire. 
And as he walks through this, the city of Nineveh and he raises his voice to preach the message that God had given him to preach, what does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that word overthrown is the word, same word that's used back in Genesis when uh, God th- says that Sodom and Gomorrah would be overthrown. So in 40 days, judgment will rain down upon this city and yet God gives them 40 days of grace. 40 days, because throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New, the, the number 40 symbolized a time of testing. For instance, whenever Israel gets led out of, the, of Egypt and toward the promised land, they come to the threshold of the promised land, and they look over there, and they see the giants, and they go, well, we're not going in there, right? And so what does God do? He sends them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to test and purge and purify them. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus, as he begins his public mission, before he begins his public mission, he goes out into the wilderness for how long? For 40 days of testing and he endures temptations in the wilderness. God tests him there. See, the number 40 in the Bible over and over again signifies this season of testing. And for, for the Ninevites, it's a season of testing to see whether they would repent and God is extending grace. In fact, God could have, had he chosen to, if he wanted to destroy Nineveh, he didn't have to send a prophet to them, did he? He could have just rained down fire and brimstone from the heavens and consumed the city had he wanted to. God did not have to send a prophet to destroy Nineveh, but he had to send a prophet to deliver her. And so the very fact that God raises up Jonah for a second time to send him to Nineveh is, a, is evidence of God extending a second chance to this people that the Bible tells us were very wicked and evil in the eyes of God. A second chance, 40 days to turn and to repent. And when you look at what God does here in Jonah chapter 3, you go, why? Why would God give a rebellious prophet a second chance? Why would he vomit him out on the shore to send him to Nineveh again? Why would God go to these people, send a prophet to deliver, not destroy the city of Nineveh, but deliver the city of Nineveh? Why would God, to these wicked and evil people who had resisted him and rebelled against him and run from him, why would he issue them a second chance? And there's one of two reasons that God issues a second chance to to, to Jonah and to Nineveh. And they're they're a little bit distinct. God gives Jonah a second chance. And here's why. God gives Jonah a second chance because Jonah is one of his covenant people. And God has pledged to be faithful to his people. He's pledged to be faithful to his people. When he makes covenant with Abraham and he says, not only you, but your descendants, I will make covenant with. And God shows himself over and over and over again to be faithful to his covenant people. And Jonah is one of those people. And so God, again, lovingly and graciously extends a second chance because Jonah is one of his people. He's one of his covenant people. But why would God extend a second chance to Nineveh? They weren't a part of his covenant people. And I think what we see in the book of Jonah is this, is that God either extends a second chance to us because we are a part of his covenant people or in order to make us a part of his covenant people. Either because we are or because he's desirous to make us a part of that covenant people. To bring us under his arms, to shelter us with his refuge. And so God gives second chance. Grace he extends to Jonah. Grace he extends to Nineveh. 
Because Jonah is a part of his covenant people and because he desires, desires to bring Nineveh under his arms as well. You know, when, when it, the language of covenant shows up all throughout the book of Jonah, in fact, when you look at Jonah chapter uh, 4, verse 2, what God says about himself to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34, 6, he's speaking the language of covenant when Jonah says, this is why I ran to begin with, because I knew you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I hightailed it to Tarshish because I didn't want to see you be merciful to those Ninevites. Because we are your covenant people. And Jonah couldn't stand. This is one of the things that he wrestled with from the very beginning. How could God extend his love and grace to people who were outside of his covenant people? In fact, when you go on further, in addition to the language of, of 310, where God is, it's recorded that God saw their repentance and he relented of the disaster. It's very similar to the language in Exodus chapter 32, whenever following the golden calf incident. Whenever the people of Israel have come out of Egypt and they're there at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is up there receiving the law and they're down there building and worshiping a golden calf. And yet Moses, God threatens to destroy them and Moses pleads with the, before God for the people. And as the text tells us in Exodus 32, God with his covenant people relents from his anger. And the same is true with what happens in Nineveh. God relents from the disaster that he was said he was going to bring upon them. See, either because we are his covenant people or in order to make us his covenant people, God extends grace and gives second chances. That's a glorious truth that we find in the book of Jonah. That's a glorious truth that we all find in our lives as well. You see, because the truth is each one of us in here this morning is either on the backside or threshold of a second chance. We're on the backside or the threshold of a second chance extended by a gracious God. God extends his grace to us either because we are his covenant people in Christ or in order to make us a part of his covenant people in Christ. So that the new covenant in Jesus' blood that he's come to inaugurate would be extended to you and would be enjoyed by you. That's why God gave you a second chance. It's the reason behind it. And why he gives you chance after chance after chance. You see, the reality is that in two ways, we can think of it this way, either vertically or horizontally. We're all either on the backside or threshold of a second chance. Vertically, every person in the room here today who is a Christian, listen, you are on the backside of a second chance because what you and I deserved was death. But what we got through Jesus Christ was life. It's a second chance. Vertically in relationship to God. And every non-Christian like Nineveh deserves death. But what is offered by God through His grace, by faith, and in Christ is a second chance to start over. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're on the back side of a second chance vertically with God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're on the threshold of one. And God's either extended grace to you because you're a part of his covenant in Christ or in order to extend that covenant to you. God is a gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God of second chances, a God who allows you to push the reset button. So that no matter how far you've gone, no matter how badly you failed, you can start over in your relationship with him. But not only vertically, but also horizontally. See, some of us right now are on the threshold of a second chance horizontally with other people in our lives. 
a second chance to love and lead in our families. You see, some of us men in the room may have had, made a mess of our families by our failure to love and lead. See, God calls us to love and lead, to sacrifice and serve for them. We may have made a mess of our children, made a mess of our home because we have been passive as opposed to active. But God right here today says 40 days, grace. There's a second chance. You can push the reset button today and begin to love and lead horizontally. There's a second chance. Or perhaps on the, on the threshold of a second chance, to show compassion and care because some of us have been very callous and indifferent toward those who are around us and toward the mission of God in our community to connect with people who are far from him and tell them about Jesus, this God who extends grace and second chances. And we've been calloused and indifferent. And today God says you're on the threshold of a second chance to engage in that mission as opposed to disengage from it and to see how glorious Glorious God can work, gloriously God can work in and through your life. The threshold of a second chance. God extends grace. It's the fact of the matter. He didn't have to send a prophet to destroy Nineveh. He had to send a prophet to deliver her. And God could have chosen to destroy us. And he didn't have to send a prophet But he did send a prophet, and his name is Jesus. And he sent him to give you and I a second chance. But what's the purpose behind all this? Why would God, right? Couldn't God find more qualified people than Jonah to go do this, right? Couldn't God, even after the fact that the, the fish spits him onto the dry ground, couldn't God go find somebody different? And try with someone else to go and connect with these people and preach, proclaim his message? Absolutely, God could have, but God has a purpose that he's working out in Jonah's life. And God has a purpose that he's working out in your life as well, on the backside of a second chance, on the backside of that reset button. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. God purposes to make Jonah a sign, and he purposes to make you a sign as well. To make us a sign. Why, there's a purpose. Why is God giving these second chances? To make us a sign. I want you to, if you fast forward into the New Testament, what you're going to see is that whenever Jesus speaks about Jonah in Luke chapter 11, in verses 29 and 30, and Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41, he's going to point to Jonah as being a sign to the people of Nineveh. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. He says, when the crowds were increasing, Luke says, he, Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, God gives Jonah a second chance to make him a sign to the people of Nineveh. To make him a sign. Now, what kind of sign would Jonah be to the people of Nineveh? God gives Jonah a second chance to make him a sign of how he works to bring life 
from death. How he works to bring life from death. In 117, Jonah 117, we're told that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before he was spewed onto the beach. And in the ancient world, in the ancient culture, if you were reading this text, one of the things that would have stood out for you was that formulaic language of three days and three nights. Because for Jonah to be in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, it meant for the original readers, his audience, that he was as good as dead. He was as good as dead. And yet God appoints the fish to release him from his watery grave. And he brings him to life. He resurrects him. And whenever Jesus looks upon his generation, his cultural context, this is what he says to them. You want a sign. Everyone's looking for some kind of sign that I am the Messiah. And Jesus says the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But the earth will not hold me in the same way the fish didn't hold Jonah. God will raise dead things to make them live. Jesus says God gives Jonah a second chance to make him a sign. To make him a sign. That God would bring Jonah from death to life. And God would bring Jesus from death to life. To show that Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. That salvation indeed does belong to the Lord. And he would make him a sign to the world. That he's able to take things and people that are dead. And bring them to life. And bring them to life. You imagine Jonah walking into the streets of Nineveh. After being in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights with no hot shower, <laughs> that would be an interesting smell. Right? Where'd you come from? That's <laughs> a fish. No way. Yeah. Yeah. I ran, I resisted. God resurrects even those who run and resist. Jesus says, Jonah was a sign. I will be the same sign. Now, why does God make him a sign? In order, here's why God makes him a sign. In order to magnify his mercy through Jonah to the people of Nineveh. So what God's aiming at, to magnify his mercy through Jonah to the people of Nineveh. And the same thing he does through Jesus to magnify his mercy to the world through his son. And the same thing is true of you and I. Why do we get a second chance? Why can we push the reset button? Why does God take things that are dead? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why does God take you and I who were dead and bring us to life to make us a sign? That God is able to make dead things and dead people live. He's able to resurrect those who have rebelled and resisted and run. To make us a sign by which he would magnify his mercy to the world. Now there's two ways you can magnify something, right? You can either take a microscope and magnify something. And you can take a microscope and you can take things that are very, very, very small and show them to be larger than life, right? Kind of like this dust mite. 
It's a pleasant image this morning, isn't it? A dust mite. If you put a dust mite under a microscope, it looks like this foreboding monster that will consume you and suck your brain out of your head. Okay? There's a dust mite under a microscope, but a dust mite, the reason you can't see it is because it's microscopic. But when you put it under a microscope and it makes it appear to be larger than it actually is. But God is not seeking to magnify himself by projecting a false image and showing himself to be larger than he actually is because he's all-consuming and expansive. But there's another way to magnify something. You can magnify something through a telescope, can't you? And if you look through a telescope out onto the night sky, you can see this is a picture through the Hubble Space Telescope, and it shows these galaxies that exist far out beyond us that we can never see with our naked eye. Because when you magnify something through a telescope, it takes things that are distant and removed from us, and it causes them to be seen as they actually are in their glory and majesty. And what God is doing in these second chances that he dispenses to Jonah and the second chance that he gives to Nineveh and the second chance that he gives to you by bringing you from death to life, from darkness to light, is to magnify himself, to magnify his mercy to the world so that through your life he would be seen as he is. As a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the way that God goes about, the way that God does that, the way that God gets magnified through your life is through what I would call this morning gospel evidences and gospel explanations. So there'd be this kind of life from death evidence in your life that you who were once dead are now alive and there's evidence of that. Like if somebody put you on trial and said, are you alive? And they would say, yes, here's the evidence of life. There's evidences, but then there's also the explanations. Now, what do I mean by gospel evidence? Here's what I mean by that. God magnifies himself through gospel evidence in our life and the fact that there was once a hard, calloused, cold heart towards God that has become soft, compassionate, and warm toward God and others. A heart that once resisted God now submits to God. It's gospel evidence. Or a life that was once marked by perversion is transformed into a life that is now marked by purity. Life from death kinds of evidence. Or a life that was filled with lust that takes from people is now transformed into a life filled with love that gives to them life from death kinds of evidence. Or a life of greed is transformed into a life of generosity. A life of folly in which we were wheels off in all kinds of areas of our life is now transformed into a life of wisdom. We begin to make choices that are distinct and different from the choices that we used to make when we were cold, indifferent, and hard towards God. It's life from death kinds of evidence. Or a life of cruelty is transformed into a life of kindness. Or a life spent pursuing comfort is transformed into a life that lays itself on the altar. For the sake of Jesus' mission and his church, it's life from death kinds of evidence. Now, see, some of, us don't, some of us have this kind of gospel evidence in our lives, and we're struggling for it. Some of us don't have this kind of gospel evidence in our lives, and we're not struggling for it. And that's a, that's, that should be a concern to us. If we're giving ourselves over to perversion and we're not struggling against it, 
or if we're giving ourselves over to greed and we're not fighting against it, or if we're giving ourselves over to lust and we're not seeking to resist it. It may be that there's not life where there was once death. Because God takes this evidence and he magnifies himself to the world, shows himself as a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love through this kinds of evidence. But to support those, that kind of evidence, you also have to have gospel explanations for why you are the way you are now if you are a Christian, right? Because you could say, yes, I'm now running away from perversion and toward purity. I'm running away from greed and toward generosity. I'm running away from folly and toward wisdom, but if someone says, well, why, why, are you, why is it that you're running this direction now as opposed to this direction? And you say, well, man, I, I got caught. <laughs> or the only way I'm going to get where I want to go in life is if I begin to make better choices. Or they say, well, why, why is it that you're giving so much away? Well, because I, I'm, I'm just a really generous person. Or why are you serving so much? Well, because I just think so much about others. Why do you bring meals to people who are in need? Because I'm just a really kind-hearted individual. Right? There may be this kind of gospel evidence, but unless there's gospel explanations for that, you know what happens is the glory that is due to God, we begin to rob for ourselves. So unless there's also gospel explanation, so you attribute the wisdom that you now possess, not not just to you've got this enlightened perspective, but the Spirit's presence in your life as He directs and guides you. It's a gospel explanation. Or attributing your purity to your desire to honor the perfect. Right? It's a gospel explanation. Or attributing your generosity to the fact that God has been so generous to you. How could you not be generous to others? Because of the generosity you've received. It's a gospel explanation. Or attributing your mission-mindedness to God's mission towards you. That God sought you. That God came after you. And so you're seeking others and going after them. It's a gospel explanation. Or attribute your love for others and, and God to... Or attribute your love for others to the love that God has shown to you in Christ. Or attribute your kindness toward others toward God's kindness towards you. See, if we lack gospel explanations for these things, and we just kind of say they're just a part of who I am, I'm just wired that way, then we begin to rob the glory that is due to God. God has brought you from death to life to make you a sign, even as he sought to make Jonah a sign to the people of Nineveh, and Jesus a sign to the entire world. That God is able to take dead people and make them live. To magnify himself. To show himself to be as he is through you. That's why you've got a second chance. That's why you have to push the reset button. Finally, how do we enjoy this second chance that God gives? How do we embrace it? How do we embrace it? The way that we embrace it, the way that we enjoy it, the way that we step forward into it is through repentance. Is that we repent. And we don't just repent once whenever we come into faith in Jesus Christ, but we begin to live a life 
of repentance. Right? Some of us think as Christians who have been on the backside of that line of faith for some time now that the only time that we needed to repent was whenever we stepped across that line and we turned away from this life that we once lived and turned toward Christ. But in reality, the Christian life is a life that is lived of, con- of continual repentance, of continuing to turn from, as we talked about last week, false gods and vain idols and impotent saviors and continue to turn toward Jesus and continue to worship Jesus. It's a life that we live of repentance. When you read through Jonah chapter 3, one of the things that stands out is the exemplary repentance, exemplary repentance of the people of Nineveh. Right? Now listen, at Jonah, just like every other book of the Bible, it has an author and an audience. It's written by someone and to someone. Most conservative scholars believe that Jonah may not have actually penned the words of the book, but he was the one who began to pass down the story. Because no one else would have known the details like he knew them and they're recorded in the text. But the book of Jonah also has an audience. And that audience was not people like the Ninevites. It was people like Jonah. It was people like Jonah. And for the people like Jonah, Israelites like Jonah... The, the, the repentance of the people of Nineveh becomes an example for them of what true repentance looks like. And so what does true repentance look like? Whenever you look at the book of Jonah in chapter 3, true repentance involves two things at least. It involves the experience of humility. The experience of humility. I want you to look at what happens in Jonah chapter 3. True repentance involves the relinquishing of rule in verse 6. Look at what takes place in verse 6. When the message reaches the king, what does he do? Does he sit on his throne and begin to bark out orders? What does he do? He comes off the throne, the representation of rule. He takes off his robe, the representation of royalty. And he puts on sackcloth. And instead of wearing the robe, now he's wearing sackcloth. Instead of sitting on the throne, now he sits in ashes before God. See, true repentance involves the experience of humility. Exactly as the king exercises it, coming down from his rule, relinquishing his reign. So repentance involves, for us, it involves more than a change of behaviors, but a changing of who or what we are bowing down to. And for many of us, before we come to faith or before we exercise repentance, we are bowing down to ourselves. We are the ones on the throne of our own lives and dictating our own decisions. But repentance involves humility where we come to say, God, I'm not competent or capable of running my own life. And putting on sackcloth and ashes and coming down from the throne and taking off the robes and saying, I am not going to be the one who dictates and determines and calls the shots for me, but I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to bow before you and not myself. It involves the experience of humility. See, repentance and coming to faith doesn't just involve trying to be a better person, but dying and becoming a new person. And listen, if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, you need to hear that. You need to hear that. That if you're turning from sin and turning toward Christ, it doesn't just involve becoming a better person, but dying and relinquishing control and relinquishing rule and humbling yourself before God and saying, not my way and my will, but your way and your will. I'm not the king any longer. You are. It's exactly what this king of Nineveh does. 
But not only is it the experience of of, uh, humility, but also the exercise of holiness. To notice what the people do or what he calls for. He says, listen, I want you to turn from your evil ways. Turn from evil to good and from violence to justice. So yes, there's a, there's a change, there's a shift in who's ruling me now. It's no longer myself, but I'm submitting to the rule of God. And when I submit to the rule of God, then things begin to look different in the way that I live. So I'm turning from evil, he says, to good and from violence to justice. It involves the experience of humility and the exercise of holiness. But remember who this book's written to. It's not written to the Ninevites. It's written to the Israelites, people like Jonah. People like Jonah who had rebelled and run from God, not through their evil ways and the violence that they had done, but rather not through their unrighteousness like we talked about last week, but through their self-righteousness they had run from God. And the people of Nineveh stand for the Israelites as an example of what repentance looks like. And it teaches us at least this, that when we come in repentance as a Christian or even as a non-Christian coming to faith in Jesus, that we're not only needing to turn away from our sin and repent of our sin, but also repent of our righteousness, of the things that we hold up to God to say, God, this makes me acceptable in your eyes because I achieved this, or I accomplished this, or I did this. See, what the Israelites needed to see is that they not only had to repent of their sin, but also of their righteousness. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, you need to hear this. This There's a massive difference, a massive difference between being a religious person and being a Christian. It's a massive difference. Consider a couple of the differences. If if a religious person is someone who repents of their sin, but they don't repent of their righteousness. Because they keep trying to pile up more and more good works so that God would somehow receive them. Listen, on Thursday, I came home um, from, from work, and uh, we were having a friend of Sarah's over on Friday, uh, and her mom, they were going to come over and play. And so I, I began to look around the house and thought, man, I've been falling down on my responsibilities around here. I haven't been cleaning the things I'm supposed to be cleaning and taking care of the things I'm supposed to be taking care of. And so I get home, and I put a movie on for the kids in the guest room, and I pull out the vacuum cleaner and start vacuuming the floors. And then I pull out the... Uh, we, we, we've got a uh, rug, a carpet shampooer, right? I pull out the carpet shampooer, start shampooing the carpets because there's stains all over the floors, right? Kids' juice boxes just kind of, it's like war in our house sometimes. And so there's juice box stains all over the floors. So I begin to shampoo the carpets because we've got company coming over. So I've got to clean everything up before they get there, right? And so I clean the carpets and I suck out all this dirt. And in the, in the dirty water container, it looks like coffee, Okay. Those of you who want to come to my house later, you're welcome, right? We'll have a cleaning spree. All right, so there's like coffee in this thing. I'm pouring it out into the sink, and I run it a couple of times, and it's, next time it just looks like tea, okay? And so it progressively gets lighter and lighter shades of brown as I run it more and more and more. And so as I look at the carpet on the top now, it looks like there's no stains. I got rid of a lot of the dirt. But have you ever been in a home whenever they begin to replace the carpet? Ever been there? 
right? No matter what it looks like on top, whenever they begin to take that edge and they rip it up and underneath that carpet, underneath that padding, there's all this dirt and funk that just has settled down there over the years. And no matter how much you scrub and no matter how much you try and remove the top layer of filth, there's stuff that settles underneath that you just can't get rid of. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that those of us who have only repented of our sin and never repented of our righteousness, we've been trying to clean our carpets before we ask God to come and take up residence. Not realizing that it can look presentable on the surface, but underneath there's still all kinds of dirt that we cannot get out on our own. In fact, Jesus, when he looks at the Pharisees, the epitome of self-righteousness in the New Testament, he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You focus on cleaning the outside of the cup, but you never clean the inside. You repent of your sin, but not of your self-righteousness. A religious person, a religious person turns away from immoral to moral. A religious person may even have right doctrine. But in reality, underneath the surface, they're still clinging to and trusting in what they're holding up before God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to recognize that a religious person is someone who trusts in their goodness. But a Christian, a true Christian, is someone who throws themselves upon the grace of God. George Whitfield said it this way. He said, conversion is not changing from one set of principles to another. You who have been raised with Christianity are in the greatest danger of being zealous for orthodox principles without being transformed by them into the image of God. Others think that they are converted because they have reformed their lifestyle. However, reformation is not renovation. The outside of the platter may be washed while the inside remains filthy. A person may turn from his profaneness to morality and therefore believe that he is converted, yet his heart is still unrenewed. True conversion means turning not only from sin, but also from depending upon self-made righteousness. Those who trust in their own righteousness for conversion hide behind their own good works. This is the reason that self-righteous people are so angry with gospel preachers, because the gospel does not spare those who will not submit themselves to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been in places like that before. Or you begin to preach the true, really unadulterated gospel, and there are people who rise up in anger because they're still clinging to their clean carpet. Whitfield says that a religious person may be believed right doctrine, they may live a moral life, but they never really get a sense of God's grace on their hearts to renew them. And here's the reason why. It's because very religious people, very religious people never get a sense of God's grace on their heart because they don't really believe that they need it. Deep down, they don't really believe that they have to throw themselves on it. They're opening their doors and saying, God, come look at my carpet. There's no stains. You can't see any of the dirt. It's really clean. You could put your baby on it now. And yet underneath, they don't really believe they need the grace of God. And so the grace of God never becomes very real to them. But true Christians, true Christians, 
those who repented of their sin and their righteousness, recognized they deeply need the grace of God, but they also realized and they're amazed by the fact that they are not beyond it. See, true Christians recognize they have a deep need for it, and it blows their mind that they are not beyond it. See, some of you here this morning may may have repented of your sin, but never repented of your righteousness because you never really saw that you needed to. And my hope and my prayer is that you would. So that just as the people of Nineveh, you would come, the king, you would come down from your throne. You would remove your robe. You'd put on sackcloth and sit in ash in repentance, not just from all the bad things that you have done, but from all the good things that you have done and tried to hold them up to God. I'll close with this. A true Christian. A true Christian is someone whose heart resonates these words day in and day out. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, and what strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ. I stand. A true Christian says at the end of the day, my strivings have ceased to be acceptable to God because I've not only repented of my sin, but also of my righteousness. And that through that, I would magnify to the world the grace and mercy of God. Because I'm not sufficient for these things, but he is. And he's given me a second chance to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and mercy. And as we sing in these moments ahead and celebrate that grace and mercy, I pray for those in here who perhaps have been clinging to their own self-righteousness. I pray that they would come down off of their thrones and they would stop holding up their offerings to you to make themselves somehow acceptable in your sight and in your presence. But they would find free grace and a second chance to magnify you, your name and your glory to the world through gospel evidence and gospel explanations in their life. Father, may your righteousness that you have clothed us in in Christ now give us freedom and joy with which to sing and lift our voices. 